0: Today's scripture reading is found in Exodus chapter 25 verses 23 through 30. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. You shall make a rim around it a hand wide and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold, and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame the rings shall lie, as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense, and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. And you shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I want to come before you and thank you for your word. I want to thank you that even in the texts that seem like they are not uh, of any notable importance, or they seem like they're just giving instructions, that we have a glimpse into your character and your goodness and who you are. I pray that today that we would look here and we would see your son, Jesus. I pray that we would have ears to hear the words that you have to say to us through this, uh, through this scripture. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Has anybody here heard that Matthew McConaughey is moving to Amarillo? Anybody heard this? This is a very serious question that I have. Has anyone heard Matthew McConaughey is moving to Amarillo? Okay, there's an article in the Amarillo Globe News, uh, and, and I, re- I started reading it. And I'll just read it for you, and I'll see if you have the same reaction I had. At the risk of starting major traffic jams and having fans invent all sorts of excuses to make drives to the Wolfland area, this crazy rumor, which began about two years ago, is indeed no crazy rumor at all. It's a hard-to-believe fact. Prior to Memorial Day weekend, noted uh, actor Matthew McConaughey, heartthrob of women everywhere, is indeed moving his family to Amarillo. And it sounded crazy when these persistent stories first surfaced. And they sound crazy now, but knocking over a feather, it's true. Ready or not, here we come, said McConaughey in a brief phone interview from his Malibu home earlier this week. Camilla and I and the kids are looking forward to the to the move, and it's something we've looked forward to a while for a while. So I'm starting to read this article, and I'm getting excited. One, I like Matthew McConaughey. Two, I live in Wolfland, so I'm like, the superstar's moving into my neighborhood. This is pretty cool, right? And I kind of get the idea that maybe this is not all it's cracked up to be. And I look up at the date of the article, and it says... Uh, April 1st 2012 and I was like oh, well there you go you know I don't know how professional that is for Emerald Globe News to do that to me but uh, I will say that I did get really excited about it I got super excited about it I wanted to find out why I got so excited about this why was my heart getting so pumped up why did I want this to be true so badly one I thought maybe it validates us as Amarilloans uh, if Amarillo is good enough for Matthew McConaughey to leave Malibu then it must be good enough for all of us right I would be cool by association. We'd all, instead of saying, yeah, I'm from Amarillo, uh, you know, the place with that uh, big Texan, we would say, I'm from Amarillo, you know, Matthew McConaughey lives there, you know, no big deal, right? Also, I think the thing that I got to the most that I was wondering about was that I think that we all would kind of hope to get to know this guy a little bit better, right? We could, uh, you know, maybe drive by his house. Or as a neighbor, I can see a day where I would like go running through the neighborhood and I'd see Matthew in his front yard, you know, like watering his grass, shirt off, and I wave at him and he waves back at me. And eventually we start stopping and chatting with each other, talking, getting to know each other, you know. Maybe our kids go to school together. Maybe I like stop for a little bit and he shows me how to make those little people out of Lone Star beer cans like he does on on True Detective. Maybe he doesn't even drive a Lincoln right? We can find all sorts of stuff about him. That's what we like. We kind of want that, right? But here in scripture, we're seeing a God who is moving into town. uh, The excitement that you have about Matthew McConaughey moving to Amarillo doesn't really scratch the surface of what the Israelites are probably feeling about the God of the universe moving in down the street. And God is preparing his place, the tabernacle, a place where he will dwell among humans. This is what he says in Leviticus chapter 26 to the Israelites. He says, I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. But when Matthew moves to town, you can bet that he would live in some gated compound or community or, you know, gated community. So nobody could have access to him. Right. So weirdos like me would stay out. But God is coming so that we can have access to him. God is not only dwelling among his people. He is sending a message through his tabernacle, the place where he will dwell. And the way he builds his house, he is telling us a story of love and of grace. The details of the tabernacle should not be brushed aside or overlooked. They, all are, they are all designed from top to bottom by the God uh, of heaven and earth himself. And they speak to his character. They are not some strange fever dream of an Austin Powers villain who wants to play everything in gold to speak of his opulence and grandeur, but rather they are telling us the details of a story that is to come. This is what Hebrews 8.5 has to say about the, the, the things that are in the tabernacle, the items that are in the tabernacle. It says, they serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. God is intentional in all the details of the tabernacle because he's trying to show us something. Knowing that, let's kind of dive into the details. Last week, David covered the Ark of the Covenant, and this week we'll be on the table for bread, and they are very similar in a lot of different ways. They're both made from acacia wood. They're both covered in gold. They're both crowned with molding, and both have rings and poles for carrying and behind the Ark of the Covenant, the table is, meant, is the next most important uh, piece of furniture in the tabernacle, as it's mentioned right after the Ark of the Covenant, every time it's brought up. The table is located in the holy place and is one of three pieces of furniture in there. So we have the table for bread, and we have the lampstand and the altar, and Jacob going to jump into those other two things in the next few weeks. Also, it's pretty small. Probably not like this uh, table out here in the, in the lobby. It's probably more like a coffee table, right? So... Um, we see it referred to all over the Bible in all sorts of different uh, titles. One of the most unwieldy and uh, strangest is The Golden Table on Which Was the Bread of the Presence. It's kind of a mouthful. And some young pastor would probably try to like, you know, narrow that down so it's something cool. But it is really important because it gets to the most important thing about the table, what was on it. That while this is basically a coffee table covered in gold, it held something extremely important and symbolic the bread of the presence. And so as we dive into this topic about the bread, I think that the bread shows us three things that it symbolizes. One, it shows us that God provides for our needs. Number two, it shows us that God knows about our needs. Number three, it shows us that God is our ultimate need. So number one, God provides for our needs. Number two, God knows about our needs. Number three, God is our ultimate need go ahead and jump in point number one god provides for our needs in leviticus we see the details about the bread that was to be placed on the table there are 12 loaves and they're piled up on the table one for each tribe and the bread is rotated weekly by the priests who would eat this bread at the end of the week in a really special meal that they would have amongst one another they would fellowship with one another and with god and eat this bread that was on the table Some some people have speculated that the Israelites are stealing this tradition from other religions who put out food and drink for their God's sustenance. Maybe kind of like putting out milk and cookies for Santa Claus on Christmas Eve. That's kind of what it's like. Other religions base this practice on the belief that God's, like human beings, needed food and actually ate and drank in some traditional manner. But this is not the case with the Israelites. In fact, nowhere in this passage do we ever get the slightest hint that the bread on the table is for God's sustenance. This is an idolatrous idea. Feeding bread to God makes him in our image and would contradict everything that the Bible teaches about his divine nature. This happens all over the world still. In places like Taiwan where we sent some people from our church to go visit a few weeks ago. And there's an actual golden God sitting on a pedestal with a table in front of him where people bring him things for his well-being. Money or, or fruit or vegetables or bread. And we do that even here sometimes. We love to make God in our image. Give him human uh, human attributes. One of the most common ways that I can think of off the top of my head is that uh, sometimes, maybe you've heard, God created man because he was lonely. Right? But the truth is is that the one true God does not need our help. Acts 17.25 says, he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. God is eternally Self sufficient and self existent. In other words, he has always been around and he will always be around under his own power. He never gets hungry and he never gets thirsty, and he does not depend on us to provide anything for him. Isn't that the God we need? It's kind of a hard truth to hear, but that is the God we need. The God that we worship is not some weak God who made humans because he was lonely and he really needed company. God made you, or God did not make you because he needed to. He made you because he wanted to. Isn't that the better truth about our God? In fact, we are dependent on God for everything that we need. The bread represents not man's provision for God, but God's provision for man. I want to say that again because this is such an important uh, thing. The bread represents not man's provision for God, but God's provision for man. The bread is a symbol that communicated that God will provide for our most basic needs. That's what the bread symbolizes. Bread is a basic food that we need to survive. If you don't eat it, you will die. And I think I'm preaching the choir here. I think everyone is aware that you need to eat, right? That's something that we all know. And Psalm 104 says that bread strengthens the man's heart. When Jesus is teaching us how to pray the Lord's Prayer in Matthew, he says, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus is teaching us to rely on God for our daily and most basic needs. And the bread in the tabernacle represents the same thing. We need to rely on God to provide for our needs, whatever they are, and know that our God is good to provide them for us. You see, the problem is that we we crave control over our lives. And in our culture, you know, Amarillo culture, West Texas culture, American culture, We believe that that we must provide for ourselves and that no one cares about you. And if you want it, you better get it for yourself. And we're eaten up by ambition and greed. And we think that we need security in our bank account and in our pantry. And God is saying that he cares for you and that he values you and that he will provide everything you need and that he will be your security. How countercultural is this idea? What if you let your security rest in his goodness instead of your performance? I submit that a church that lives with reckless abandon for Jesus in contrast with a culture that scrimps and saves for themselves will radically change their city and their world. Listen to what Matthew 10, 26 has to say about this idea. It says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? The eternal God loves you, and will provide for you. He's asking for you to rely on him and his goodness, to put your security in his hands, and he promises to provide for your needs. Let's go to point number two. God knows about our needs. Let's go back into Exodus chapter 25. Look at verse 30. Let's notice where the bread is. It says, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Regularly. Literally, this bread is before God's face in his presence, and on top of that, there are 12 loaves that represent the 12 tribes of Judah, showing God's remembrance of his people. It was always there, too, as a perpetual reminder of God's providential care. These loaves are constantly tended to by priests, so like if there's a moldy uh, loaf, they just swap it with another one. There's never a point when there's nine loaves of bread. There's always 12 out there to show that God is always aware of all of his people's needs. Right? And this bread was not in God's presence for his own benefit, but for the Israelites' benefit. You see, God does not forget. And the bread was not set before him to remind him that his people needed to be provided for. Rather, the bread symbolized God's constant awareness of his people's daily needs. Isn't that incredible? The links that God has gone to so that you know that he knows, that he has not forgotten you or your needs. But sometimes we forget his greatness and that he is gently and lovingly saying that we, he has never lost sight of what you need. In fact, your needs are constantly on his mind. And that's what he's showing us here by placing our most basic need in front of his face. He's comforting you. This is a very difficult idea. Um, it's very easy in times when things are good, but it's very difficult when times are tough or when tragedy strikes or when there's pain or sorrow. But God is calling us to look to his goodness and provision in these times and to remember his excellencies. This can be such a powerful thing. This idea can be so powerful. And we've seen it this week. It's what allows a church in Charleston to forgive a man who walks into their church and shoots down people dead in a Bible study. And they can turn around three days later and say that they forgive them because they know that their God is good and that he loves and cares about them and will ultimately provide for them. That's what it looks like. And while the world is confused and dumbfounded by the massacre of innocence, the forgiveness given by the church members is shining forth the glory of our God upon a confused world. And it brings them warmth and comfort that they don't understand. Have you noticed Facebook that it's lighting up with people that aren't even Christians that are amazed by a group of people that will forgive a man that killed their friends and killed their brothers and sisters? They are are comforted by God's glory. They are comforted by this act of grace that these people are perpetrating upon the man that perpetrated such a horrible crime on them. It's amazing. In the midst of unbelievable pain and hurt, when we trust our God knows about our needs, his name is made great among the nations. Even when the nations don't know why. But we know why. We do know why. We know that when you think he doesn't care about you, he does. He does. And when you think that he's forgotten about you, he has not forgotten about you. God knows what we need, and he can be trusted to provide it. And our needs are ever before his face. And the tabernacle is purposefully showing us that we do not serve a distant God that is far away from us, but a present God who knows and cares for our needs and that is intimately involved and aware of your needs. But the story goes even deeper than that. Point number three, God is our ultimate need. So by giving us our daily bread, he's teaching us an even deeper lesson. He wants us to learn that we really need what we really need is him. Philip Ryken puts it like this. He says, as God meets our daily needs, he is teaching us that he is all we need. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the father's mouth. Now, what he's getting at there, he's saying that, you know, man does have basic needs. We do need some needs to be met on a daily daily basis. But he's saying that we have a far greater need than that. Our real need is God himself. And while we do need God to provide for us, our deepest need is to have fellowship and relationship with the living God. See, once upon a time, man and God walked together in perfect, loving harmony inside the Garden of Eden. God had provided all that man could ever need. A garden full of every fruit that they could ever imagine or choose from. And most importantly, it was full of himself. But man felt like God was withholding things from them. So they made the decision to provide it for themselves. By taking of the one tree that God asked them not to eat of, they scorned all that God had provided for them in the garden and all that he promised them because they thought they could provide for themselves better than he ever could. Thus, a great separation took place. The fall happens and man hides himself from God and covers himself from the God who they once walked in the garden with. They knew that in their sin, they could not be in the presence of the Holy God. Man was cast from the garden. We begin to see what a world apart from its creator God looks like a world of death and sickness and murder and hatred and racism and rape and abuse and slavery and all sorts of sin. Man desperately needs and needed the presence of God. And God knew this. And he made his dwelling place among man. God moved into town and he set up his dwelling place among a people that was not particularly great or notable. But in his tabernacle, sinful, sinful man was able to glimpse the presence and the glory of the most high God. And once a week, the priests and the elders were allowed to come in and share fellowship with God by breaking bread around the bread of the presence of with their fellow followers, and with the God of the universe. It was here that man experienced a very small fraction of a relationship with God and that had not been seen since Adam and Eve attempted to provide for themselves. But these small interactions are so limited. Only certain people. Only certain times of the year. Jesus has an answer to this. John chapter 6, verse 32 35 and then i'll go on to read verse 51 jesus says jesus said to them i say to you it was not moses who gave you the bread from heaven but my father gives you the true bread of heaven for the bread of god is he who comes down from heaven and gives light to the world and they said to him sir give us this bread always and jesus said to them i am the bread of life whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall not thirst I am the living bread that came down from heaven, and if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. See, the language that Jesus is using here is not a coincidence. It's not an accident. He's making a specific reference here to the fact that while man has needs that need to be met on a daily basis, man has a far greater need. That while bread meets our most basic daily needs, he is the ultimate bread that meets humanity's ultimate need. Our need for God and our need for a relationship with him. Christ, our king, came into the world among us. He dwelt among us. And the bread of heaven gave up his body to be broken for the world in need. He became the bread that is broken around which we are allowed to come into the infinite presence of our beautiful God. And sinful humanity is allowed to enter into the presence of a holy God because Jesus went willingly to the cross to provide for you what you could never provide for yourselves. You see, God is not only placing bread in front of himself so that we know that he's aware of our needs in Exodus, but he's trying to show us something even better than that. God is placing the bread of heaven, the broken body of Christ in front of himself to show us that he knows our ultimate need. Our need for a relationship with the ultimate loving God of the heavens and earth. And he sent his son to provide it for us. And it's only over the broken body of Christ that we can come into God's presence. It's through Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection that we are welcomed into fellowship with a holy God. And it's through Jesus Christ's death and our, uh, that our greatest need is met. And it's through his resurrection that we have hope. Let's pray. Father, I want to come before you and I want to thank you for your word. Your word holds such deep and beautiful truths about you. If we only look to find it. Father, I pray that as we continue through this series of of Exodus, that you would continue to show us your goodness and your kindness and your faithfulness to us. And not only that, but your provision for us, your ultimate provision for us, that we desperately needed um, our sins to be taken away and you sent your son, to do that for us. We thank you for that, God. And I pray that as we go into a time of communion that we would rest in the fact that you have provided for us what we need. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.